Hey, y'all, if you enjoy watching your podcast, which seems kind of weird, watching your podcast, but some people really enjoy that. So we have a YouTube channel. You can find it at Heather Parody, P-A-R-A-D-Y. It's also linked up in the show notes. You can hit subscribe. And several of these interviews are actually in person. So you can watch that. Again, that is at Heather Parody on YouTube. A few months ago, I was scrolling through Instagram looking for tips on how to be a better communicator. And I just realized what a millennial I sound like. But I did run across this guy named Renee Rodriguez. Over the last 25 years, Renee has researched and applied behavioral neuroscience to solve some of the toughest challenge in leadership, sales, and change. I loved his content and his way of breaking down why certain communication tactics work and why some don't. I read his book, Amplify Your Influence, and had him on the show to talk about not only how to be a better communicator, but also how we can settle into our skin a little bit more. In this conversation, you're going to hear the differences between being a good storyteller and a well, not so good. How to tactically lean into your nerves when you're feeling inferior and how to challenge ideas without being divisive. Renee also told me to keep being quirky, so you know I liked him. A lot of people confuse loudness with power. That's not the case. And the, the one that's the most dangerous is usually the quietest. So what, what if feeling confident wasn't part of the equation? What if feeling confident wasn't the determining factor. What you call quirky personality, I would call a change in stimulus, a dopamine hit. Like just I when you're telling a story and you do It's not quirky, it's a change in stimulus. <laughs> All right, y'all. So I've read, Renee, I read your bio and all that cool stuff. I found you on Instagram <clears throat> several months ago. I have been mildly obsessed over the past few months of learning storytelling and trying to figure out how to use this gift that I believe God's given me, which is communication and try to hone it in a little bit and step in from like hobbyist to professional. So I always go to Instagram and look for reels and so forth. And I ran across you and just binge through a bunch of your content. And luckily for me, you agreed to come on this show. But before well, I start hammering you with all these questions, I wanted to tell you that we've had this book for months and I didn't tell anyone that I had you coming on the show. But for some reason, you've come up in conversations probably two or three times. I don't know how, but just randomly hmm. somebody will bring up your name. And without fail, every person has said that you are the kindest and most genuine person mm. that they know. And wow. that meant a lot to me because I was like, okay, this dude obviously knows a lot about influence, but he is actually influencing people for the good. Mm. So I wanted you to know people are talking about you like that, that's, which I'm sure you probably already know. So no, thanks for, really cool for coming Thank on. Uh, first question for you. You said curveballs, So this is a good one, right? I, like I heard on another interview that <clears throat> at 18 years old, your mom gave you a book called Lions Don't Need to Roar. And I heard in another interview that when you were 18, you were watching like Jim Rohn's sales videos. And I was mm -hmm. thinking, what was this dude doing at 18 years old to be investing in his personal development and sales at that young of an age? Did you come out of the womb knowing you were going to do what you're doing now? You know, it's, what's interesting is... The answer why I was lucky to have good people around me that handed me those things. So my mother, she's been doing this kind of work, well, she had been doing this kind of work since I can remember. And so everything that I learned in the beginning was watching her. She was a nun. Oh, yeah. She, she was a nun. <clears throat> I should play for you. At the afters, I'll, I'll 
I'll show you a video that shows my 30 year journey and begins with her. And <clears throat> I remember seeing her speak for the first time at 17 years old and realizing that immediately I'm like, okay, like what I want to do is right in front of me. But I wasn't, I was a basketball player. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. And <clears throat> I got cut from my college basketball team. So then that left me with no basketball career and I hated school. And so I got a chance to ask a CEO, what's the one thing I needed to do to be in his shoes when he got older? And he just looked at me and smiled and he said, you learn how to sell. If you learn how to sell, you'll always be employed. And I was like, okay, at 18, you don't really ask any questions. And I got recruited to work for selling cookware door to door. So I did that because that's, I was told to go sell and I didn't have anything else to do. That's when my the franchise owner, my boss gave me, you know, this, this thing, this cassette. I'd always seen on this 30 days to personal power, Tony Robbins tape series. I don't know if you're old enough to remember tapes, but cassette tapes. And I'd never seen him in my mom's closet forever. I never knew who this guy with big teeth was. And then <clears throat> he handed me this thing from Zig Ziglar to, you know, on goal setting. And I'm like, okay, I listened to that. And his voice was at the first was very harsh. And then you grew to love it. And I listened to it probably five times. And I'm like, okay, give me another one. This is great. Like there's a process to setting goals and achieving things. Then he gives me Jim Rohn, take charge of your life. And I put that on and I was like, that was, I was hooked. I've listened to Jim Rohn's take charge of your life three, 400 times over and over and over and over and over again. So I saw that and I was like, okay. And then I remember them talking about this guy named Anthony Robbins. I'm like, is that the guy in my mom's closet? And then I went and grabbed that whole cassette series and I just started listening to that. And then Awaken the Giant Within. And it was just like, just like this thing. I was just hungry for it. And probably because I was, I didn't have that kind of guidance. You know, my mom, you know, I didn't know my father, but my mom worked a lot. So she was a guide, but in her own way and how she could do it. But I didn't have the sort of that daily conversation and that became that. And so it was just, I was just hooked early. So when you said she was a former nun, I heard you say that somewhere else. <clears> and I thought it was a joke because you were usually, you know, start a little joke about that at the beginning mm -hmm. about like, you're grateful she's not a nun anymore. Mm -hmm. She really was a nun and she left that, did she leave the religion or just leave being a nun? She Well, she was an Adrian Dominican for eight years in, okay. on the border of Haiti. And so she would teach children how to read and write. And there's a lot of guerrilla warfare going on, a lot of craziness and of course after the cuban revolution and kind of being part of all that there was a lot of crazy interesting stories and then one day you know her goal in life was global peace and community and so she decided one day that this was not going to be the most effective way of her had of maximum impact and so she told mother superior she said i think this is my last year here she said if you already know this is your last then this is your last day you leave tomorrow and she was gone mm -hmm. the next day so she started working with migrant labor in southern florida as sort of her way to to empower and, and help people and to bring them to, to light. And <clears throat> that began a whole series of learnings for her that became sort of the backdrop of her work and truly the backdrop of my work too, which is something we actually don't talk about enough. I should, I should more, but you know, she was like, you know, watching a, a culturally Catholic country turn communist in six months in Cuba is wild. I mean, how do you create that kind of massive change so quickly and businesses can't do it in years, but they did it in six months. I mean, culturally Catholic and become communist six months. Well, they did it very differently. They walked the fields. They, they, talked, they, they took over the education system. They took over the media. And they would literally walk the fields and talk to the farmers. They, they didn't mandate it. It was just this, the soldiers were part of the process. And fascinating to watch that. She also, in the beginning of the revolution, learned, feel, felt that her belief system was if, if the change was good then, and people died in the process, it was okay. Some people have to die in a process. Right, just part of the change process. But what she realized that if you kill your way into power, when you're confronted with an issue, when you're in power, you're just going to go back to what you resorted, resort, you're going to resort back to what you learned and what you've been practicing, which is killing. And mm -hmm. so realize then that 
the end does not justify the means. The means needs to reflect the end. So the road to heaven needs to be heaven. If, if you're going to be peaceful, then you need to do it in peaceful ways. You, and there's, you know, and some may disagree with that. And, you know, the whole premise of war is to show an act of strength, to show it, to, to deter, which I can see the logic in that too. Yeah. But I think that if you're going to be a leader and you want to lead with compassion, you want to lead with empathy, and you don't lead with the opposite of that. And then once I get into power, I'll be compassionate, empathetic. You'll have no practice. And so there's, and it doesn't mean by the way, weakness, it's just a reflection of doing those things along the way. Then she, you know, watched, you know, cities leveled after when she moved to Germany. Well, she, by the way, she lived in five countries before the age of 25. So Cuba, Cuba before and after the Cuban revolution, Germany, right after the Holocaust and the war. Panama during the Panama Canal crisis was in the border of Haiti as a nun with the guerrilla warfare and then in Las Vegas during the A-bomb testing. So it was like all of this war revolutionary thinking. And, and so my mom was different, very different. And, mm. you know, Y2K, if you remember that and the whole thing, oh, yeah. she hoarded everything and she made forces to go shopping because she was, she was used to stuff like that happening. And it was fascinating just to remember how she how she grew up. And then I mean, there's like 15 other lessons that came from that process that created a foundation of the work that we do. That's what I was going to ask you. Growing up with – your mom just sounds like a complete badass. Like that is so cool. I mean how has that shifted and shaped your worldview when you're entering into this conversation of influence and communication and so forth, because yeah. reading your book, listening to your work, I can feel a subtle difference there and I haven't been able to pinpoint it. I, I do have one guess of a word I'll bring up later, but in your mind, having that kind of background, mm. how, how have you approached this conversation of influence differently <clears throat> than maybe someone else? I think it grounds me in a different place and I'm not saying it's better. It just grounds me yeah. in a different place. So go back to your question around lions don't need to roar. What she taught me was what real power was. Real power was the elder in a, in a native tribe that was silent and just listened. But if he wanted to, he could banish you. Doesn't mean he will. Yeah. But it was more listening, that the power was in listening and to gathering perspective, still holding court and still making sure that there's order, but didn't need to yell and scream. And uh, a lot of people confuse loudness with power. That's not the case. And the, the one that's the most dangerous is usually the quietest. And they have nothing to prove because they've already know themselves. They know what they're capable of. They know what is there, but they also have a bigger picture in mind. So they're not trying to do this. And, it, and, it, and it's a funny thing that you know people misunderstand what the alpha energy is. And alpha, you're usually seen as dominant and protective and fighting. It's not what it is. It can, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of an alpha is harmony. It's to keep the peace and it's to ensure fairness and ensure that there's a community. And at, at times there may need to be a sense of aggression, but that's the last resort. It's usually dip, diplomatic and it's usually empowering. And when there is disharmony, the, the betas get together and they will oust the alpha until somebody comes in and puts order in place. And, you know, I think Lion King was a great example of the alpha and Mufasa and, and was a kind and gentle king, but you wouldn't mess with him. Right. There has to be a deep sense of security. And, you know, you talk a lot about you know, the self-awareness piece of who you are to be able to show up in that and not have to prove something or dominate the self-consciousness that comes with communication. Man, 
I told you at the beginning, this show, the the idea of it, the premise is I wanted to be able to gather all the folks who didn't feel like they belonged in a room and yeah. nurture that inside of them to give voice. And it obviously takes years of practice and reps, but man, that security within yourself that I'm okay showing up as Heather freaking parody in whatever room that I'm in, man, it takes a lot of work, a lot of work. A lot of work. And I wanted you to speak to the nervousness piece because I think out of anything that I struggle with, it's probably the nerve element. Mm. And I'm weird because I overcompensate sometimes. Instead of like getting shaky, I get really quiet and almost reserved. And I've noticed that in myself. And I've been working on it. But I wanted to get your opinion about calming your nerves and feeling like you belong in a room. So what, what if feeling confident wasn't part of the equation? What if feeling confident wasn't the determining factor? And I, I pose it as a question. And because I think we wait for things like that to happen before we step out. But what if motivation didn't matter? The, the things that I've come to find out from those that are most influential, successful, and I say quotes around successful, are the ones that don't depend on motivation. They rely on discipline. And... It's, I do this because I, I'm, this is what I do. I hate it. I'm scared, but I still do it. And there's a sense of any dependency on something outside of oneself, that which you cannot control is where the problem typically begins. It's a Mm -hmm. promise that will never deliver. It's the, that's the pursuit of happiness, which really is the pursuit of the dopamine high that doesn't last. And so I go, well, in my mind, I'm like, well, what if confidence didn't matter? What if nerves were good? What if I'm not trying to get rid of the nerves. What if the nerves served a purpose? And I embrace that. Then all of a sudden, because the power is given to that when we try to run from it. And then when it comes, we crumble versus you're here, nerves, welcome. Yeah, I knew you'd show up. (laughs) Let's go do this anyways. My mentor taught me, he says, Renee, the, the butterflies will never go away, but you can teach them to fly in formation. And that's a quote that's in my book. I, I accurately quoted that person. So I make sure that we get an accurate quote there. But it's the concept is when you, you eliminate its power, like a lot of times, like I'll give you an example. It's like if somebody's speaking and you see a shaking glass, right? And they're talking and I say, can you influence somebody with a shaking glass and visible nerves? And people say, no. I said, okay, well, if I'm saying, guys, I'm really excited to be here, you know, just a lot of great stuff. And, you know, yeah. you'd be paying attention to the, the nerves instead, the glass that's shaking. But if you were visibly nervous and you said, you know, folks, I am nervous doing this. This is mm-hmm. not easy for me to do. And it's not easy because this, this work matters to me. And all of a sudden there's a congruency that's there with word and body and behavior. And it's the congruency that we want versus the, the, the versus, you know, polish. I'd rather have mm-hmm. congruency over polish. And so a lot of people will, will think that I have to eliminate all these nerves, these aesthetic things versus saying it's part of the process. I want to move away from awkwardness. What if awkwardness was a requirement for growth, which it is. There is no growth without first going through a moments of awkwardness and failure. Preach. You know, even when I get frustrated around conversations around failure, I'm like, well, how about we just stop making it a conversation and realize it's part of the process? Well, it's like, well, well, well let's talk, what do you think about breathing? You have to breathe. Well, what do you think about failure? You have mm-hmm. to fail. So let's stop giving it so much power and start embracing the reality that it's just part of the process. And I have to fail. And the sooner I fail and the faster and more often I fail, the better I get. It needs a rebrand. Yeah. You said somewhere you used to be nervous when you first started speaking and getting in front of folks. No way. Oh, yeah. 
100%. How? Because you should be. The moment, the moment that I'm not is the moment that I've, I've become complacent. As I stop caring, I stop trying. I stop trying to raise my own bar. And I've done that several times and I can go back to go, man, I, I got too comfortable. And on stage, I wasn't as ready as I should have. And I failed the audience. And so the nerves are good. I'm like, okay, whew, this is, I got to breathe. And it's not like any basketball player, or professional athlete doesn't get nervous. They do. They just know how to manage it. And so there's a relationship with the nerves that works really well. And the thing is, it's like, if I were shocked that I was nervous, then I'd be like, oh my God, I'm nervous. Am I going to fail? Versus, yep, I'm nervous. This is part of the process. Now I breathe. Yeah. Which is the next part of the process. And then I ask myself, why? Do I feel prepared? And I go through the checklist. Am I prepared? Have I done the work? And then I go, ah, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be impressive. I got to stop trying to be impressive and just express what I feel. Move from mm -hmm. impress to express. And so I, I go through all of this stuff every mm -hmm. single time. It doesn't go away. It doesn't yeah. go away at all. And, and, and I think the underlying philosophy of that is what's my purpose on that stage? When I say stage, I'm quoting that. Stage meaning it's my, I'm on stage right now with you. We're both on a stage. People are going to be watching this. Yeah. Is my pur purpose to be impressive or is it to express? But really, at the end of the day, it's here to serve. Right now, it's here to serve your audience, serve you. You're giving me a platform, and my platform is not to take. It's to serve. And that changes the whole piece. If I'm trying to impress, then I'm trying to name drop. I'm trying to show how cool I am. I'm trying to talk about things and accolades versus... If I'm here to serve, then I'm listening to the little things and I'm trying to find out what is important to you and how do I utilize my experience to lend value to you and to your audience. And the fundamental deep shift that happens not only in my performance, but also in the experience of the person is what I believe is the secret to it. But it's, it's easier said than done. That's what takes practice. Because they can feel it. They can feel your intention energetically of where it's placed. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. You said almost exactly what I had written down here. Remember how I told you that I felt like there was something a little bit different about your approach and your work. I had written down empathy and there's, you have a formula, right? That you go through in your book of communication and influence. And one of the pieces <clears throat> is tie down in mm -hmm. Oh, you have a whole chapter on that. And I wanted to read this section right here. because I think it speaks to what you just said. You said too often people assume that just because they have spoken clearly, their message has been heard. They also assume that the listener can connect all the dots and that the listeners know what has been said or presented and what it means to them. And this is a dangerous assumption. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I was like, good this sakes, Heather, you make everything about you. Oh my goodness. If you could just shift everything into real. And I know we say that because it sounds really sexy, like, Ooh, you know, serve people or whatever, whatever, but truly and really putting all of the focus and attention empathetically on that listener will help you frame everything. It'll help you know how to, what stories to tell, what tie downs, because you're thinking about it, that experience. My friend, I, I feel like that's what you bring to the table. That's so different that I haven't yeah. really heard a lot of people talk about. But getting out of my selfishness, you know, that's a, that's another ball game. So well, I think sometimes the selfishness is unintentional. It's actually sometimes yeah. we reach selfishness with a good intent because we want to be really good. And so mm -hmm. there's a really positive intent there that has a, the opposite outcome. And so some people say it would be selfish. They, they have such a negative connotation to that. So sometimes we're, we're unintentionally selfish for the wrong reason. Sometimes we have to be selfish. Like I said, be selfish on this podcast because I think that'll actually serve your audience. And it's agreed upon thing. Okay, I'm going to ask every question I can and get as much out of this. And then there's the unintentional and selfish in the truest definition of focus on oneself, right? Meaning my feelings and my, my desire to be impressive can have the opposite effect. 
of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then when you're focused on serving, you're actually focused more on listening and it's, and you can't dupe your, the system on it. It's either, you can't pretend to be, you have to truly be in that place. And it comes from the underlying belief system. Somebody said, Renee, you know, thanks for showing up today. I was, I was doing a keynote and I'm like, thank me. I go, thank you. I go, do you know how silly I look on that stage with no one in the audience? I go, trust me. I said, most of my career was to an empty audience. And so I said, I'm here to serve you. The fact that you showed up means everything. And that's not just a line. I know it sounds good, but it's what I really feel. And why do I really feel that? Because I know what an empty audience feels like really well. <laughs> yeah. How do you actively listen and empathize when you're delivering something that's been worked on for months and months and months. So let me give you an example. You're standing on a stage and maybe you're delivering something and you put in all the prep work, but maybe energetically you don't feel like people are receiving it. Is that something you change in the moment? Are you that present or you do? You're shaking your head. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It, so people ask, like, people talk about mindfulness. Can you be mindful on stage? practice mindfulness, 100%. I'm solely on this stage and I'm solely paying attention to the body language and the energy in the room. There is an energy in the room and there is, this isn't hokey. I mean, you can feel the presence, you can feel distractions from people, you can feel disassociations, you can feel uh, disinterest, you can also feel engagement. You can feel, there's so many micro expressions being shared with you from that stage. And if you're just really in tune with it and fully present, you can do that. And if your goal is to serve, and then of course, I mean, there's a practice to this, right? You know, there's, if, if the audience is disengaged, I go into a deeper story, more vulnerable. The superpower there is vulnerability. And when they're, it's almost the opposite because the last thing you want to do when people are disengaged is to share more of yourself because they're going to be less interested in actually who you are. But the paradox is, is the more that vulnerable you are, the more people engage. And so it's mm -hmm. a lot of this is paradoxical. How do you tie in a story though, when there's not any coming to you? Is this just a practice thing? Like you have to, because that seems like a lot of improv to me, because if I'm on stage and I'm really effing it up, which has happened, it has happened. Um, my mind starts, I guess it goes back to the breathing piece that you were talked about being in the moment. But like, if you have everything prepped and stuff, I mean, stories readily available that you just pop in there or what? Absolutely. Well, you think about it is it's like, okay, and I'll do this in our class all the time because they're trying to say, well, what if they take you on a different route? And it's like, well, do you know where you're going? Like we talk about ethos, pathos, mm -hmm. logos, yeah. kairos, and telos, right? So talking about telos, which is the end goal. And I have somebody, we, we're sitting in an L shape. Imagine sitting in an L shape. And I say, John, I said, I want you to come up and grab this, this cup of coffee. And I just said, come grab a cup of coffee. So he stands up, moves his chair, walks around other people and grabs a cup of coffee. And I said, great. Did you need to, did I need to outline the steps you needed to take or were you clear on the outcome? He said, I was clear on the outcome. I said, okay, great. Go back. So John, grab his cup of coffee and he comes over and I move a chair in his way and he just stops and he turns around and goes the other way. So a chair in the way is a curveball that somebody throws you. You still know where you're going. You still know exactly where you're headed. You just might have to take a different route to get there. And so a lot of people lose sight of the end purpose or the outcome of their goal. But then <clears throat> there's the practice side of this too, where you go, okay, so what's, what's the purpose of storytelling? You, you had asked storytelling. A lot of people think storytelling is the outcome. Storytelling right. is a means by which right. to achieve something, which is influence. And, but still people don't get it. Like, and I know that when people don't get it, because I usually say, I have a story I want to share with people. And my first response, just to be a little shocking, I go, no one cares about your story. And they look at me like, I go, but don't you teach storytelling? I go, absolutely. Yeah. Go, but no one cares about your story. I go, well, what do you mean? I said, I go, think about it this way. 
I said, what's the purpose? Of the, what's the difference between a really good storyteller and someone who loves to tell stories? There's one difference. Objective goal. Well, the difference is, is the one who is a really good storyteller used a story to deliver a message of value. They used the story. They didn't use your time just to tell you a story. Damn, that's so good. And the difference at the end of that is just, it's worlds apart. Because they go, well, this guy's like, they go, oh my God, they're, they're, they're telling a story again. Really what they're saying is, they're going to waste my time for no reason at all. Versus somebody who's a really good storyteller, you just get engaged because you know there's this beautiful lesson at the end of it. There's something valuable at the end. And so the vehicle is story. That's so good. And what's been interesting is trying to figure out what is the necessary part of that story versus what am I just being romantic about because I'm attached to this sentence and this word. And the elimination process has been interesting for me lately. Even some of my quirky personality because I want to show a little bit of that in the story and sometimes I'll make mm -hmm. a little comment here and there but then my question comes back is that serving the story is well, I think it keeps people engaged you think I so? think it keeps people engaged yeah absolutely because what you call quirky personality I would call a change in stimulus the dopamine hit like just well, when I'm you're telling a story that, and you do, <laughs> what's that so I'm going to start using that. It's not quirky. It's a change in stimulus. <laughs> it is. It would keep like what keeps what you know. If I were to talk in a monotone voice like this, there is no change in stimulus. And after a while, your brain habituates to that. But when you have a little curveball here and there in the story, it just it little hits of dopamine along the way. Dopamine is created through novelty as well. And so a little novelty, a little hashtag, a little you know, this is what's happening here. It's a little a side note keeps things interesting. And so the, the big piece is, you know, of course, you're saying the elimination process, how much of the story should you tell? If you are focused on just wanting to tell the story, you will have no insight as to when to stop. If you're mm -hmm. using a story to achieve an outcome and you're clear on the outcome and you see the outcome achieved, you know, you've done enough. And so mm -hmm. we tell people is it how much do you share as much as necessary, but as little as possible. And it's not to be cryptic, it's you've achieved the, the goal. And so now let's move forward. That's storytelling in business, by the way. Yeah. Storytelling as much as necessary, but as little as possible. Well, I mean, it's similar to with like screenwriters and novelists and all of that is they always, what was it? Stephen King cut the darlings or whatever, just eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. Here's, here's another thing. I don't know if you picked this up or not, but my hands are all over the place. I move quite a bit and there's some good stuff in that. But sometimes I wonder about like over dopamine people, you know what I mean? You don't it's all good. I sometimes get complaints. People will say, girl, you use your hands too much. You're a little too squirmy, but this is, if you were having dinner with me, like this is what you would see. And so it's been kind of interesting trying to shave that, I guess. Don't shave it. Keep it going. I like yeah. you, man. So, so here's why I say that there are, so it's, it's, there are people that there are people there's experiencing something and then there's auditing something. Those are two okay. very different things. So if I'm experiencing you, I'm not auditing how you do it. I'm experiencing something just who you are and I take in the whole. And when you look at the research, hand gestures are one of the most important things for not only attention grabbing because they paint pictures, mm -hmm. but it's also for memory because we use, we, I use, you use gestures, I use gestures to help my memory, right? You're like, oh, what was that one thing? And we, we things that just trigger memory. Yeah. But also it does that. So they did a study on, and I'm going I'm to butcher the numbers a little bit on the top quartile of TED Talks in the bottom TED Talks, bottom sort of segment of TED Talks had an average of 137,000 views and about 257 hand gestures approximately. But the top quartile had 
4.3 million views. That's exponential from 137 to 4.3 million, but 465 hand gestures. And so hand gestures are huge. They're critical, especially in uh, like a Zoom call, right? Because this can become very stale. This little box that we speak in comes very stale. And so you have to move your hands and use things. If people wear glasses, take them off every once in a while, put them back on. You know, if you're writing notes, show your pencil every once in a while. And those things just kind of break up the monotony. But but somebody that's like, that's why focus groups and marketing aren't all that accurate. Because hmm. it doesn't put them in an experiential fashion. They're saying, what do you think of this product? And somebody who has no experience in, you know, looking at product utility or thinking from a customer perspective, they just say, well, you know, and they start giving, th that's an auditing process. It never really works. If I'm doing a training session for, and I have run into this all the time for a big corporate client, they say, well, we're going to send our HR and learning development to audit the thing. And I, and I, and I look at the leader, and I go, okay, happy. They're welcome to come. One condition, they're not auditing their participants. And if you can remove that they're there to audit, then it's going to help you. You can still bring them to audit, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. They're going to say, oh, I read that book. Yep, we talk about emotional intelligence. Yep. Oh, hand gestures, body language. We have a module for that. And they're not experiencing the whole of the mm -hmm. experience versus the individual parts. And there's no value in that. And it's usually pretty inaccurate. That's fascinating. I'm sure you've heard people say, because I've heard, you know, when I started in these reels, people would DM me and they'd be like, I would love to tell more stories, communicate, but I don't have that personality, Heather. I don't, I am, I don't have that. Maybe I'm a little more reserved or quiet and so forth. You mentioned like small things like picking up your pencil or moving your glasses and so forth. But I think what are we, the end to the mean, I guess, what are, what are, what's our goal here with the movement? Because I think if we understand that, we know what fits our personality. So why do we like watching movies versus reading the text? Why do we prefer a well- positioned visual aid versus just gathering the information. Why do you need in-person presentations? Why can't you just mail me the data? I don't because know. we, well, think about it. We need other forms of stimulus to be able to truly engage auditory, visual, kinesthetic. There's all sorts of things that are involved in the learning process. And story is a great way because story is how we memorize things and how we remember things. Yeah. It's all done through narrative and narratives are constructs of reality. And so we're we make sense of the world through the narrative. And if you're really good at narrative and story and you can take an idea and put it in a story format to deliver a message, it'll be remembered. And without memory, there's no change, there's no action, there's no execution, there's no referral, there's no, I mean, memory is a huge underappreciated component of all of this. And so every time I'm speaking, I'm thinking, how does this become memorable? You know, versus going to a, a talk at a conference and it's super, it's like, it's on a high but as soon as you leave, you don't remember anything. People, you get on there, people yelling at you, you know, you got to dominate your day every day. Wake up and dominate. And you're like, oh, I'm going to dominate my day. And you write that down and two days goes by and you wake up in the morning and you don't feel real dominant at that day moment. You kind of feel like a human and you don't have the adrenaline running through your body. And you're like, well, I'll go to my notes. I got to dominate today. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. Word. It's, yeah. It's just like, what does that mean? And I refuse to be that person, I would much rather burn an idea into your soul through good story, through heartfelt emotion, through mind-blowing logic, through a, a conversation, through an example that makes sense, through a philosophy, through a connection to values, so that now all of a sudden you wake up and you can't get that story out of your head. You can't yeah. get that visual out of it. It haunts you. Now that, that's lasting. With that, a lot of these stories are very personal and they involve 
other people. One of the stories in your book, you talk, and it made me laugh. I know it wasn't probably meant as humorous, but it was when you were in New York and all the lights went out and there's just this crazy power outage at New York. People were panicking, which is not funny, but what Renee did was funny because he pulled out like a, a notepad and you were taking down what was My going blackboard. on in the world. Yeah, you were you were mining stories, which I love. I've done that. And then sometimes I'll look back at that list and I'll go, is it okay for me to share that story about that stranger I met? And that's, an e I guess, a little easier of an answer, but it comes a little bit more difficult when it's maybe my mom or my dad or people mm -hmm. who could be still, hurt. still around. Yeah. How do you navigate that? I get that question a lot because we do a lot of origin story exploration with people to say where yep. they come from. And a good percentage of that comes from mom and dad. And the reality is some of those stories aren't nice. And guess what? We're all human. My kids are going to tell stories about shitty things I did. And yeah. one of the things I did with my kids was say, hey, by the way, I'm a lighthouse and a foghorn to you. There's some things that I did great and you should follow and let me guide you. But there's certain things that you need to go, whoa, warning sign. Do not be like that. And I go, and we need to, you need to be okay telling me that. I'm going to tell you right now, it is okay to have that conversation with me anytime you want. And I think parents need to normalize the conversation with their kids about where we were human, where we did the best that we could, and allow them a space to talk about it. I know that's ideal and not everybody does. So that what people have to do is they have to navigate. I think there's ways to share stories. If the message is more important than the story then you can change certain details to protect people's dignity and yeah. their privacy. You know, there's, you know, there's a mentor I had growing up instead of saying my mom, you know, there are people that I had in my life that, you know, were, I needed them to be there for me and they weren't and the details of who really doesn't matter because I know that that individual did the best they could and it's possible for people to do the best they could and still not serve the needs of somebody that is called being human. It's the human experience. And now I got to deal with what that means. And now I've told enough of that story to illustrate why I'm there, but I've also protected mm. the integrity of that person. So is the detail in that moment is necessary? Is it worth hurting the individual? It might not be. But now here, I'll tell you this. There's some people that were just horrific parents and that to this day don't care what the child says. Then I say, you know what? Tell your story. You, you, if they weren't there to provide any healing for you, you got to do it on your own. And it's, they dug their grave, not you. You're just, you're being who you need to be period. Mm -hmm. And if, and if they get hurt by it, then, Hey, I wanted to talk to you. You didn't want to talk. So I had to do something yeah. about it, you know? And it's in that sense, you know, you, you just, I think people have to assess for themselves how much they want to share and they don't share. Well said, you just said that you get asked that question a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. When you said that, I thought, damn, well, what questions do you never get asked that you think are really important that no one thinks about? Ooh, I wish people a... would ask me this more often. What should they be asking? Give me more context. I can think about it in several contexts. Let's just say in speaking, let's just say, I'll just go. And then you think of one as I go here. So if let's say in speaking, you know, what they should be asking is not how do I get on your stage? Because everybody, they ask us, Renee, I want to get on your stage someday, or I want to speak next to you. And my response always is, I said, I go, even though it's my stage, I don't choose who goes on my stage. Right. And they look at me like crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? I go, my audience does. I have to, I'm there right. to serve an audience. And so you need to saying, what do I have to do to become that attractive person? What do I need to do to create the audience? That's the question. How do I get more reps in versus how do I get to the end goal? Well, reps are everything. Like, like, you know, you want to run a podcast, you better do about a hundred crappy podcasts before you get good at it. 
I mean, how long did it take for you to figure out your lighting and your reels? I mean, your lighting is fantastic. Like you've got the shadows and then the sort of the dramatic look and that takes effort and time. I guarantee you your first ones weren't like that. No. You know, no. and your audio, like your, your, your people, well, how do I use a microphone? Well, if I'm not putting it in front of my mouth, it doesn't sound good. But now I get it in front of my mouth and it sounds great. And so learning all those details, it's all about reps and putting the time in. But what about the storytelling you know, though? I want to know about that. What should people be asking about storytelling? What should they be asking about storytelling? I think it's, wow, well, maybe, maybe you should be asking how, how do I explore more of my own story? Because I oh, think that, man. I think it goes okay. back to people saying they want to share the story, but really what's the purpose of the story? And as somebody who believes that story is so critical, I also don't lose sight of what the purpose of it is. It's the Trojan horse. So let's, let's analyze a Trojan horse. Like why was the Trojan horse? What was the Trojan horse? Like what was the, what was the purpose of the Trojan horse? It was a big ass horse. I don't know. They couldn't, they couldn't penetrate the forces, right? So they, there was defenses up and if they came and attacked with their message, they just would have been met with opposition. Instead, they said, here's a gift, okay. right? We made this beautiful horse for you. Here's a gift. Now, what did that gift do? It lowered the defenses so that now once they were past the defenses, they could release the message, which were the soldiers on the inside. Now they released a message of death, but let's get rid of what the message was and look at the formula. I have to lower the defenses before I can communicate. Yeah. And so the story is what does that. It lowers the defenses. So then I can open up messages of love messages of hate, messages of tolerance, messages of intolerance, messages of empathy, you name it. And how do I, and that's the premise of the whole book is around not so much how do I communicate to you, but how do I prep my audience to be able to listen? Yeah. And that's, and that's do, the piece of it. Doing that online is hard, man. Like really, really tricky when you don't see the faces and I mean, I'm primarily communicating digitally and I know that you have a whole training on that and you help folks do it. And this right here, you know, yeah, there's all these little tactics of, you know, you were, you were getting our heads right and, you know, looking at the camera, which I totally don't do. I need to do more often. Like those little things matter, bring humanity in a digital landscape, but it's also too frustrating as a storyteller when, you know, I'm, I, I want deeply to impact the folks who are watching these reels, but besides the like, that was cool, Heather, you know, I don't really get that kind of feedback, but, and I don't want to use views as a measure because that's so fickle, right? It's a part of it. I guess. It's, it, yeah. it's a part of it. It's, it's not everything, but it's a part of it. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't design your whole life around views, but it's a measure, one of many. But I think, you know, one, the secret to looking is I look through a teleprompter. So I can see you and the cameras on the other side of the mirror. So I can see you, you can see me. That's one of the, the innovations that we, that we came up with. Uh, shout out to Ryan Grams of Studio Upgrade. That's his invention. But, you know, when we're, we're looking at, and you, you'd said, what was that? The measures in, oh yeah. So we're, we're talking about how do you do this digitally? Well, the, the, the yeah. big realization I had was pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom, I was teaching storytelling to audiences and how do you do keynotes and how do you run meetings and things like that. And then I tried doing the same thing and so did many speakers digitally and it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason was one, the difference between two things, a captive audience and a non-captive audience. So if you're speaking in person, if you're at a keynote, you have a captive audience, they can't swipe you. They can't scroll you. 
They're sitting physically in a chair. And so starting off with, it was May 15th, 1961. And this story, or I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to tell me, like, that's that's a great way to start a, uh, a message in a keynote or a meeting with a captive mm -hmm. audience. The moment you do that on Instagram, you go, so I remember when I was a scroll, just doesn't work. And so yeah. that paradigm had to shift where we yeah. said, okay, it's non-captive audience. That's the first question. Is it captive or is it non-captive? If it's captive, begin with story. If it's non-captive, begin with hook. And the hook is a three-second audition yeah. for attention. Three-second audition, meaning you are not entitled to that person's attention. Even if you have a following, you have to pretend mm -hmm. that they don't know you and you don't know them. So you can't use inside language. You can't use inside jokes. Mm -hmm. You have to get really clear and keep it simple within three seconds for me to watch. When in, in people say they write hooks, they don't. It, you, the only way you know if you're writing hooks, unfortunately, is your view count. That's the only way. And if, because that shows that people are watching. So that measures your, your first three seconds, in my opinion. And so I used to get so angry about that. And I was trying to change the world. Say people need to grow up and realize that, you know, content isn't found in less than a minute. You have to actually, life changes, take, requires more than a minute. Yeah. So you should stop being impatient. Instead of me surrendering to the reality that, Maybe I'm the guy saying, well, the music in my era was better. Yep. Instead of saying, this is today's world and how do I adapt to it? Yep. And that's what we had to do. I just wanted to lean into that a little bit more because so much of story is that land, right? And the delivery. And there's so much I feel like lost when I'm cutting something down into 60 seconds to really let something breathe. Mm -hmm. And so the wrestle between letting a message land and breathe a little bit, but also to in our new communication world where we need that new dopamine, it's been interesting figuring out how to tighten things without losing the life, the yeah. energetic life in something. I'd love yeah. your thoughts on that in general. I had to, I had to change what my outcome goal was for this and realize that there's, there's a journey that we're taking them on. Step one of the journey is intrigue and curiosity versus okay. lesson and learning. Now, if you can get the lesson, some you can get across in 60 seconds. Sometimes I just need to intrigue you and make you ask questions mm -hmm. so that you watch the long form version of that. Mm -hmm. You know, so like the purpose of whatever reels we create here would be to create intrigue and an open loop, okay, like the end of a show. Like what, what, what's the answer to that? You know, a lot of people are really good at these podcasts where you'll ask me a question and, and maybe a tough one out about that. And I'll say something like, well, you know what? People aren't going to like my answer. And then it goes to your logo and like that. And so then it's like, okay. And that's really smart because it's one, it's surrendering to the reality that that's how we function. You caught my attention. High five. Okay. Mm. Click to watch the full answer. So let's go and watch the full answer. And so it, I had to surrender to the to reality that my goal was to create intrigue and to deliver a short, simple message. Like that's the problem, by the way, that's the hardest part about Ted talks. I did two Ted talks and they're still the two hardest talks I've ever given in my life. Really? And the secret of a Ted talk is one idea. And mm. the hard part about creating a Ted talk is sticking to one idea. And I have trained a lot of people on Ted talks right before they come to me. I got a Ted talk one first high five. That's not an easy thing to do. And then people that do Ted talk type things, which is 20 minutes or less, 17 minutes or less. And I go, here's your thing. You got to stick to one idea. And they're like, yeah, I have one idea. And they'll present it to me. And I go, I counted seven. I go, what's the one of the seven? And here are the seven I counted. They're like, oh my God. And then they start feeling that they all matter. They're all important. I said, what is the one idea? And when you can finally whittle it down to one, 
And a lot of times it's like you realize that it's, you, it's not that it's, you don't have enough time. Yeah. It's that you haven't gotten clear enough. And so mm. the, you know, there's an old adage that says, you know, Hey, what does it cost for, for you to do an hour keynote? And I'll be like, uh, 45,000. And, uh, okay, well, what if you just came in and did, um, you know, 20 minutes? I said, 65,000. Like, well, how shorter, more expensive? I said, do you know how much more time and effort I got to figure out to still move your audience in oh, less time and how I got to, what I got to cut out and how much clearer I got to get? And I'm in, it's three times the work. And so it's the, the idea that it's, when you really put the time in and people don't realize how much time and effort it, you, you put into really nailing that message in 60 seconds. It's like the one, I've got a really good person that does it for me. Mo Ismail, you should follow him. He's amazing. He's the one that, that came to me and said, Renee, you're doing this all wrong. And I was in the place. I'm like, it's not, it's not the place for me. Social media is just not the place for me. I, I do better with people in person, you know, all that stuff. And he kind of laughed. He goes, no, Renee, he goes, you have good stuff. The world needs it. I'm just gonna show you how. And he grew our account to over a million followers on TikTok in less than six months. And oh, no. I think we just passed 200,000 on Instagram like this last week, which was really cool. And this is all in a year, a year's time. So the wild ride of me surrendering to that and then learning still how to get clear on what's the one idea, just one. And being okay that there's other, there's a YouTube, you can watch the full thing if you want, or there's other contextual things or go to my website, you know, there's other stuff there, but what if I just give you one idea and mm. that's, that's the practice and the discipline. I'm going to push on that a little bit. You said I could push on push, you a little bit. Push away. This, let's, let's go. So this one idea you have said a few times, and I'm going to paraphrase this, that influence, it's easy to say hamburgers are awesome to a whole bunch of hamburger lovers and they'll all agree with you, but it's different whenever you can present an idea and actually make someone who disagrees with you mm. think <clears throat> about what you're saying. And I like that Renee, but also there's this thing inside of me that revolts against any kind of controversy. And I know that's not what you were saying, but I think I've seen so much of that in my life that my goal has been to be a bridge. I always think about a bridge. I want to connect people together. And I think I may be thinking about this wrong. <laughs> but when you said that about being able to, if your message challenge other people, I want to figure out a way how to challenge, I guess, folks, but do it in a way that is that bridge. Yeah. You know, and maybe I'm being I, too weak. I don't know. No, I don't think those are mutually exclusive at all. I think okay. the, you know, it's the, 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 the sort of the extreme example is posting your political views on, on Facebook or social media. Okay. All that does is it unites people who already believe that to say right on and those that don't to go, you're crazy and to move further away. So there's no uniting in that process. You are challenging, but you're not challenging in a way that's effective. And the pieces, like it, just, it takes zero leadership to do that. It takes zero influence. But if you can spark an idea in the mind of the opposition, to make somebody who disagrees with you go, huh, I never thought about it that way. That to me is the true definition of influence. I can, that's where the, that's where the real work comes into play. You know, you go into like, I, I got to Google his name because I, I remember it. It's a Nick Carpenter or something like that. Nick something. He was a black man who decided to start having conversations with members of the Ku Klux Klan. And he just said, I'm just going to meet with them and listen. And he did that for years and he's converted over 200 clan members 
just by listening, just by listening. And he didn't attack them. He didn't challenge. He just listened. And the proximity of that is so powerful. I mean, that is influence. And so like, you know, I love your, your effort on and your goal of uniting. And so then go, okay, so I'll give you an example. This is a, a relevant and difficult one. And it's, let's look at Palestine and Israel. Horrific on all angles. No one's winning this one. No one's winning at all. Children are being killed on both sides. And, you know, you go back and the, the, the point of which people pick up history is the basis of their argument. And it all makes sense. You listen to, I think it makes sense. I've got some dear, dear Jewish friends that are just going through hell right now. And I've heard stories on Palestinians and, you know, then the media gets involved. I mean, God, where do you begin to have an opinion on this thing? And it's so difficult. And, you know, even friends would have a hard time hear, hearing me say, where do you have an opinion on this? And it's not that I don't see what's going on. I see all of that. But just that conversation brings so much emotion to the yeah. table yeah. that it's, it's, it's hard to get objective. Not saying you can't, and there are people that do, and I listen to as many of those as I can. And there are, there are some pieces of this thing that are that seem to be pretty, and I say seem because I'm not an expert, irrefutable. And in that, saying, okay, how much, of, how much influence is being achieved through posting, posting, and posting about this versus, I, I'll give you another example, George Floyd, when that happened. That happened 15 minutes from my house. Uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, it takes me about 15 minutes to get there. And... During that time, people were asking me, Renee, why aren't you more vocal on social media? I said, vocal about what? I said, well, you're Cuban. I mean, you know, shouldn't you be talking about how bad this is? I said, I go, I am vocal. I'm just not vocal on social media. It does nothing. Mm -hmm. I go, I've had about 80 conversations with very influential white men over the last three weeks. And it's been exhausting. And it's been emotional. And it's been tear jerking. And it's been heavy. I go, but I don't post it on social media. I go, for some reason, some of these men in power listen to me and I can have conversations and I can listen. And one of the things that I saw during that time was not a popular opinion that the most important voice during that was of white men. And like, yeah. what are you talking about? I said, because you have a lot of very powerful white men that are saying, how do I help? And then people that are radical biting their heads off. It's because of you guys that are doing this and you guys. And that person that wanted to help, who, by the way, has money, has the ability to employ, has status and influence. You could have had them on your side, but you attacked them. And so their response is, clam up, maybe I shouldn't say anything and just listen. Well, then nothing's happening. I go, how about we give them a voice in this and so that we can create allies and help create some change that's going on instead of all this other shit that's going on? Now, those were my conversations. I, had, I can't tell you how many times I had very people that were on one side of thinking after that conversation go, man, I never knew or thought about it like this before. And they made some massive changes. Now that is influence. That is change. It didn't get me any social media views. Wasn't the goal. Right. Wasn't the purpose of it. And nor was right. that the platform. But it still created I'm change. Glad, I'm glad you brought it back to this because it's almost like a full circle moment when we started off talking about your mom and the worldview and the context that she brought to the table and infused in you and your DNA and your personality and everything. And, you know, looking at you as a successful man in America who shares the rooms with all these other dudes in power. And I have felt like going through your content that you still have a pulse, you know, on 
other rooms and other people and deep empathy with other people groups. And I just sense that about you and your content. This is the first time I've ever met you. I feel like you get it, right? You can roll in both rooms, essentially, mm. is what I'm saying. Kind of wrapping up this idea here of influence in this conversation, I guess a fear of mine, something that I've struggled with is rolling in the successful rooms and elevating my brand and growing, but also to not losing the pulse of why I started at the very beginning, which was yeah. the underdog and the forgotten and people who voice shake a little bit when they talk to others. How have you managed to keep a pulse on that and still scale your business and your brand? I think what a lot of people don't see is the 30 years prior to this. And so when I say that, it's not because they, it's just because they did, had no insight to it. One, there was no social media back then. And two, I didn't have much of a social media presence, you know, upwards of, you know, until the last couple of years. And so I kind of did it backwards. I, I spent 30 years mastering a craft to become, and, and then putting a brand around it versus creating this beautiful brand and then trying to fill it with some sort of expertise in, in content. So the reality is that that other side, the, the humility is beaten into you over time in the reality of it. And I think, and also realizing it's the self conversation and self reflection and being surrounded by really good people that will be like, Renee, what the hell are you doing? You know, there's, there's, there's certain people that I know the moment I embellish the moment that I don't quote something correctly, like even me talk, you know, me saying the, the quote around butterflies flying in formation, mm -hmm. it's not my quote. It's the integrity behind that comes from an accountability of good people that will be like, what the hell are you doing, dude? And yeah. those people matter to me. And people say, well, you shouldn't do what matters. I said, no, no, it's, there is a place for other people's opinions in that, because to me, it's part of, it's part of the test of truth. Would those that I respect be okay with what I'm saying? And if the answer mm -hmm. is no, would I say this to them? No. Then why am I saying it publicly? And that mm -hmm. I think creates a really good filter by which to, to do things. And when you realize that, you know, what your objective is and you realize that you're there for a purpose, but when you are there for views, likes, climbing a social ladder, creating your influence, it's easy to lose sight of some of those things. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm perfect in that area, but I think that, you know, your purpose, your mission is something so near and dear that I realized that the best way, and this was actually, this came another lesson from my mother because, you know, she was a community builder and then she, you know, she got invited into the private sector and became very successful working with businesses and very large companies. And I, and I remember as a kid, I'd be like, mom, why don't you help these communities? Why are you helping all these rich people? And she said, Renee, she goes, for some reason, these men listen to me. And sometimes we are called to do certain things that we didn't plan. And for some reason, this is my calling. And that's the role I have to play. Some people play the role at the community level, which I played for many years, but for some reason they're listening and I have to serve that. And I was like, okay, that makes more sense. And so sometimes we just have to listen to who is listening to you and why, and maybe that's where you need to be. And maybe that's where you're best. And you don't get mad at other people for choosing their role or for being called into certain power. Cause we all need to, we all have roles. If we were all doing the same thing, it wouldn't, it wouldn't function. For some reason, this is my role. For some reason, this is your role, right? You're, you're putting a podcast together that's done differently and real conversations and, and thoughtful and you clearly have done your research. And so there's your role in that, that piece. And, but going back to your question around, you know, managing the rooms, I think it's when you walk in that room and you're there to just listen and serve, you forget about rolling in a room. You're just in a room 
being you. And that's that, that, and that's the unintentional ego, right? Unintentional. And I say that we all have to, we all have that, the unintentional wanting to impress. Cause then that's when you start calculating which kind of room am I in? Should it matter? I don't think it does matter. Now, are the times where I got to play, get my A game? Yeah. Right. Do I need to understand the room from the percent of who the audience is? If I'm in a bunch of financial people and storytelling probably isn't the first place I start. And so, you know, what's, what's going on in there's certain arenas that you better add value quickly. And that's, has nothing to do with me. That's just the style of the room, not my worthiness of the room. So some people confuse style of a room over their worth. Shouldn't do that. Preach, preach y'all. One final question left for you, but before then, incredible book, pick it up, amplify your influence. Anything else that you want to direct our listeners to? They follow me on Instagram. Uh, we got a free masterclass. I don't know when this is coming out. We got masterclass that we're putting out there. It's uh, pretty cool. But yeah, I think, you know, follow and listen to what Heather is talking about. I think she's going to be, I think your podcast, my prediction is going to, it's going to continue to grow very, very fast. Stay on the path that you're on. You're doing something really cool. And by the way, the coolest things grow the slowest. Oh, somebody tweet that. Somebody tweet that out. Word. Very last question questioning things uh, i think we always need to be in a spot where we're curious and pushing against stuff what are you questioning right now it can be related to our conversation here it could be questioning something in spirituality it could be questioning why in the world taco bell has breakfast burritos because that makes zero sense we not healthy not a good idea but what is something renee is questioning right now in this season in your life questions gosh re- reflection is one of the core elements of who I am. And I believe that reflection is one of the highest forms of prayer. Like you can go back to the story of creation, six days created the earth, rested one, but at the end of each day, he asked himself, did I do good? Which is reflection. And I think through reflection and questioning is the only way you can assess your life and the only way you begin the process of changing for the better or continue doing something good. So I think that's a beautiful question. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm questioning. I'm questioning, am I doing this business right? Am I approaching this correctly? Because I watch, you know, and, and I, I know the answer. I, I thought the speaker fee was my goal, like the highest speaker fee. That, that was yeah. the goal. And well, I, I spoke 239 days last year at my highest speaker fee ever, and it didn't achieve the goal I wanted. I was gone all the time. Influence grew, so maybe, and I get it. It was a season, but it's not that. And I watch people that are, you know, have a quarter of the experience that I do go on stage, and and they, they do their business very differently, and they're at home. So I'm going, huh. I don't mm. think I'm doing it correctly. And so we've been engaging on different things like free masterclasses, which is different. We don't usually, we never did anything free. Everything was always $6,000 minimum just to be part of a class of mine. And we'd sell them all out and all that stuff. But, you know, looking at new ways of reaching more people while still achieving our financial goals is it's where we're questioning. So we're in deep process change on that. And here's the best part is that I'll be doing it again next year and I'll be doing it again next year and I'll be doing it until the day I die questioning, are we doing this right? Well, the folks I mentioned at the beginning were so right. You are kind and generous. Thank you so much for your time today. And also just privately encouraging me along the way in the path that I've been on. I don't take that for granted at all. And your words mean a lot to me. So Renee, it was an honor to have you on the show. My pleasure was all mine and happy to do it anytime.